this morning we are returning to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, as most of you know, we've been in a sermon series on Ezekiel for some time now, and I uh, am just, this is just kind of the cut, the cloth I'm cut from, I suppose. I, I uh, out of conviction, I do prefer to preach what's called Lectio Continua, that is straight through the Word, moving verse by verse, usually through a book. I tend to do that for long periods of time. Uh, as seasons come and go, I might pick up the excuse as a season comes to do a, a brief, uh, uh, more compacted series on a theme, which is what we just did on Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, I, was, I was glad to see some of uh, the, the books on family worship in our book depository disappearing. That's great. Praise the Lord. Hope that those are of good use to you. But we are resuming this morning our uh, trek through the book of Ezekiel. Uh, and so, if you'll join me in chapter 19 is where we are, I'm going to give you some background information and then we will read through. Um, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to change my plans. Oh, no. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen, so just listen. Let's, uh, let's hear the word of God together. And you, God speaking to Ezekiel, Take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, it is on the screen, my mistake. What was your mother, a lioness? Among lions she crouched. In the midst of young lions she reared her cubs. She brought up one of her cubs. He became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. The nations heard about him. He was caught in their pit. They brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When, he, when she saw that she waited in vain, her hope was lost. She took another one of her cubs, made him a young lion. He prowled among the lions. He became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men and seized their widows. He laid waste their cities. The land was appalled, all who were in it at the sound of his roaring. The nations set against him, provinces on every side. They spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit with hooks. They put him in a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into custody that his voice should no more be heard on the mountains of Israel. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by the water, fruitful, full of branches. By reason of abundant water, its strong stems became ruler's scepters. It towered aloft among thick boughs. It was seen in its height, the mass of its branches, but... But the vine was plucked up in fury. Cast down to the ground, the east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for a strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. Fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. What you have just heard is the inerrant and perfect Word of God, I think in this particular case, full of mystery. And as we explore it together, we ask for His help, and we continue to confess that this is the Word of the Lord and say, thanks be to God. By way of reminder, we are still in the middle of what Old Testament scholars call the first temple vision of Ezekiel. You can think of it as first vision and its consequences. We've been in the middle of this section since about chapter 8 when God pours all these words of judgment and idolatry on the abominations going on inside the temple, inside the house of God. And then in chapter 10, you have the glory of Yahweh departing from the temple, God leaving the building, so to speak. One of the most saddening things to ever happen 
in Israel's history. God left. It is difficult for us to imagine this because we, a new covenant people, have the promise of God's forever presence. So it is hard to wrap our mind around the idea of God departing, of the glory departing. Best I can do, take the tragic sorrows of September 11th, the assassination of JFK, the, the uh, tragedy of, of Pearl Harbor, all these things, you know, combine them all together, and that would still only be on the outskirts of the horrific sorrow of the reality that the light of God, which cannot dwell with darkness, was driven out of His own temple. What comes after chapter 10 is about 13 chapters of prophetic testimony trying to come to grips with what just happened. And what, if anything, can now be done? You might recall that at the end of chapter 18, God gave Israel a word of hope, telling them that they should turn and repent and live. The closing verse of chapter 18, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. And right after saying, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't want you to die, Israel. Turn, repent, and live. God sings a funeral song. Chapter 19. Now, that is so unavoidably weird that you should take notice. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's unavoidably weird. And when you find unavoidably weird stuff in the Bible, my pastoral counsel to you is not to avoid it. In chapter 19, God is explaining some things. If you love someone, as God does love His people, do you not want to be understood by them? We just prayed for marriages. Husbands and wives, do you not want to be understood by each other? Among friends, do you not want to be understood? Do you not want your motives and actions and work to make sense to other people? Do you not want, in a sense... This is theological language to justify yourself before men. You want people to understand you, especially if you've done something that causes them to ask questions. In Ezekiel, God is often making clear the what and the why of what He's doing. Judgment and wrath being poured out on Israel is the just result and consequence of their sin. Israel has become more like Sodom than Israel. So they meet a similar end. That's chapter 16. But God wants to make clear, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't take pleasure in the death of anyone. That's chapter 18, right at the end. But then he must make clear that death is coming to Israel, to Israel's kings, and then by extension, all those who the kings have under their authority, the nation. And this is a really terrible thing. So much so that God gives it its own lamentation funeral song and so in this lamentation we read about a lioness her cubs and sorry we read about a lioness and her cubs that's the first illustration and then we read about a vineyard now god loves metaphors i don't know if you know that metaphors stories parables book of revelation right apocalyptic word pictures that are absolutely crazy god is a poet through and through and the almighty is once again using these metaphors here in order to tell a story about who He is, about who His people are, and where they've come. He is narrating their history. Okay, If you didn't catch it, Israel 
is, uh, uh, well, the two lions here are two of Israel's kings, and then by extension Israel as well, and the vine, the same story. If someone began a story with the words, uh, in 1776, a great eagle was born and grew and until it soared high above the nations. Right? We would all know what was happening, right? 1776, uh, American eagle soared. Okay, got it, right? But somebody's telling a story about the kind of growth and, and extension of influence of the United States. That's kind of what's going on here. This metaphor story would have been recognized quickly, lion language and vineyard language, as being Israel and kings. But this is a lament. This is a a funeral service, a funeral song. But get this, it's a funeral song for somebody who at the time of writing was still alive. Yikes. If you've read Treasure Island, or if you've seen the masterpiece encapsulated so gloriously and beautifully by the Muppets, (laughs) you know the story that Billy Bones receives the black spot, right? The death notice. It was his old pirate buddy sending him a note saying, we're coming for you to kill you. Ezekiel 19 is a death notice of kings of Judah. There are two main metaphors again going on here. Lioness and cubs and vine and branches. Both were very familiar images for the royal tribe of Judah. The images are brought together here in a different way. If you think of Jacob back in Genesis, Jacob's blessing of one of his sons, he called him a ruler, uh, excuse me, Jacob's blessing of his son Judah, that a ruler would come from him, and he used lion language. If we, can we go there now? Is that the next one? Genesis, oh yep, uh, let's see, Genesis 49.9 is what I've got as our next one. Thank you. Uh, Judah is a lion's cub right there. So this is Jacob's blessing on his son Judah. From the prey, my son, oh, lion, prey, where have we heard that? Oh, it's right here in chapter 19 of Ezekiel, this lion and prey language. Stooped down, crouched as a lion. Oh, we have a lioness too. Oh, interesting. Okay, all the, kind of think of these as like buzzwords that would have drawn people's mind back to the blessing in Genesis 49. Now from there, some people would have known, uh, if not all people, would have known what was going on. They were hearing a lament for Judah's kings. So let's unpack the lion picture, verses 1 and 2. God addresses the lamentation to the kings, or in this translation, the princes, same difference, of of Israel. A lioness, verse 3, has a bunch of cubs. She picks one to be the leader of the pack. And he starts doing lion things, okay? Consuming prey, okay? No problem. He devoured men. Wait a second, big problem. Verse 4, as a result... He gets hunted down by the nations, captured and carried off to Egypt, a a lion, pack leader, king, failure. Verse 5, mama lion appoints a second cub. Let's try this again. Verse 6, unfortunately, same story. Okay, we read, became a young lion, learned to catch prey, devoured men. In the ancient world, Generally speaking, you leave the big beasties alone until they start eating you, and then you have to kill them back, right? Generally speaking, that's how these things were handled. But wait, verse 7, this one's even more destructive. Seize their widows, laid waste to their cities, and the land was horrified. The land was appalled at the sound of his roaring. And so the nations come against him, 
and he gets taken to Babylon, right? You see Babylon mentioned in verse 9. They bring him into custody. Now, okay, the people of God are sitting in Babylon, right? You'd have to be really dense to miss. If you didn't get what was going on by now, you got it. Okay, the Lord is talking about our king and us. Now, the text is interesting here. In the ancient world, this practice of of pursuing and catching lions was familiar. Again, generally speaking, nobody's looking to go pick a fight with a lion. And generally speaking, the lions left the cities and villages alone. But if the men of the city got word that a particular lion or other large carnivore had attacked or killed a person, it was go time. The lion was designated a man-eater, a threat to the city, and they made sure to go take care of business. And that, uh, the way they would usually do it was to try and trap him in a concealed pit and then kill him. Now, so again, as soon as we see the word Babylon, we know we're dealing with a kind of parable or allegorical story. The first cub represents Jehoahaz, who was, after a brief three-month reign, was carried off to Egypt by the Pharaoh. There is debate over who the second lion is. I'm pretty sure it's Zedekiah. We've already talked about him in earlier chapters. Verse 10 begins the second image, where a vine is planted, and the conditions are great. It flourishes. Lots of water becomes really strong. Verse 11, strong enough so that its stems become rulers' scepters. Again, if you had any question whether or not we're talking about kings, the Lord is hitting you over the head with it, hitting His people over the head with the scepter, as it were, saying, I'm talking about your kings, Israel. Well, in this case, Judah, excuse me. But pride goes before the fall. What you notice about this text, no fruit, right? Vines, vines, vines. We're talking about vines, but there's no mention of fruit, just about how big they're getting, how far they're spreading. Everyone, look at us. Look at how big and mighty we are. Uh, uh, the, the, this attainment we're realizing as a nation, right? No word of fruit, but just everybody's looking, uh, getting really high, massive its branches, and so on. And so what happens to the, prou- uh, to the proud? They get knocked down. If you know your Bibles, that's what happens to the proud. They get knocked down. They get replanted. Um, oh, sorry. It gets beaten up and burned up. That's verse 12. Plucked up in a fury, cast down, the east wind dried up its fruit. Well, there was a mention of fruit right there. But dead fruit, stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. And then it gets verse 13, replanted, this time in the wilderness, in the desert, in Babylon. And indeed, verse 14, destructive fire comes out of its own branches. Right? So now, Israel, you're destroying yourself consumes its fruit nothing is left suitable not even for a a, a scepter no scepter for ruling that's the big point it's the last line before you have this pronouncement this is a lamentation and has become a lamentation the vine is judah planted by the lord in perfect conditions we might even call it i don't know let's say a promised land right (laughs) flowing with everything they needed As a result, she produces lots of big, powerful vines, gets really proud, uh, kings capable of ruling, certainly, but pride is her downfall. In wrath, the Lord uproots her, withers her, replanting her outside the promised land in exile. The fire which started in one of the branches results not simply in a 
loss, destruction of, let's say, land and people, but the total annihilation of all of the other branches so that there's no more scepter for ruling. Transla- tr- translation, there's no king left. The point is that Zedekiah, in Zedekiah, the Davidic dynasty is coming to a sudden end, at least for the present. There are lots of parallels with this and uh, earlier chapter 17, which is also targeted at Zedekiah, by the way. And the conclusion is the same. There is no escape. Judgment is coming. When I started thinking about this sermon and thinking about this, this funeral dirge that takes up all of chapter 19, I couldn't help but think of the Christmas Carol, right? Charles Dickens. Another uh, movie perfectly uh, delivered by the Muppets, if you're curious. And Michael Caine. Ebenezer Scrooge gets a preview of his own funeral, right? Which is what this is. God is giving the kings of Judah and their people a preview of their own funeral song. What's the result of Scrooge's experiences, right? Well, reformation of life, happy ending, very works righteousness, isn't it? But not so here, right? No happy ending here. Fate is sealed, doom is sure, replanted in the wasteland, no more scepter, totally broken. Which is interesting because, again, back in chapter 17, hope was given at the end. Let's look at that. Chapter 17. Again, vineyard, similar kind of vine metaphor. I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar. I will set it out. I will break off the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. Under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, every sort of bird will rest. All the trees of the field shall know that I am Yahweh. I bring low the high tree. There's the pride. I make high the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. I will do it. Hope, hope, hope. Look forward, right? None of that here. This is doom and unbearable, and I put it to you, seemingly contradictory. Because I don't know if you remember, but back in Genesis 49, let's go there now, verses 9 and 10, a passage with, again, all those close imagery links to Ezekiel 19, God promised that a scepter would not depart. Let me find that. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, right there in the middle, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, what do we do with that? Some of you are already kind of doing the homework here. Uh, uh, Until tribute comes to him, to him shall be the obedience of peoples. Yes, here's the point. God had promised that the scepter will never depart from Judah. And he kept that promise, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the great son of David, great son of Judah. The point is, is that God's promises, and this is true of all of them, by the way, cannot be isolated from their context and then presumed upon by his people. It would be like if you promised a friend, I'm going to be there for you no matter what, and I'm going to help you forever. And then they developed a horrible, deadly, costly addiction. And they come to you asking for money, and a place to stay. And you say, no. Right now I am protecting you from yourself, and I am protecting my family from you. And in that way, 
you are actually keeping your promise to them. In a promise that sees further than the impulses of the moment. Okay? So the Lord says the scepter will never depart from Judah. He did not say there will never be consequences for this sin. The scepter will, for a time, seem to have vanished. Because, the sins com- because of the sins committed by those who held it. So what do we do with this chapter, 19? Well, so far the sermon has been all explanation of background, and I really appreciate your patience with that. Take a deep breath, dear saints, because I know it's just been a lot of information so far. Explanation of ancient backgrounds can be a hard thing to listen to for, I think I've been going for about 20 minutes. So, I have a few reflections to share with you on this before we come to the table. First, As you already know, this is a lamentation. That's what verse 14 tells us. This is a lamentation. It's become a lamentation, right? Now that's a bit clunky. What's being said there, think of Treasure Island. This is the black spot. This is the death notice. The New Living Translation translates it, this is a funeral song and it will be sung at your funeral. Right? So it gives you a sense of of the weight of what's being said right there. But stop and notice that God is the one doing the singing. At first glance, you might think that God promising destruction, again, contradicts what He said in chapter 18, which, to remind you, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Right? But it's not a contradiction. God is just, and sinners who curse God and rebel against Him, and live as though He doesn't matter, will and must face judgment. But even God, the righteous judge, stops to lament. Even Jesus Christ stops to weep by the tomb of Lazarus. So at the very least, this should teach us that lamentation should have a place in our practice as Christians, because apparently it has a place in God's. So what is lamentation? I offer to you a definition here. This is mine. This is all mine, and it's, it's not complete. But it's just going to be for our purposes this morning. Lamentation, think of it as an intentional and sustained expression of sadness and grief over real loss and tragedy that does not immediately or obviously prioritize looking up or moving on. That's, that's kind of my best shot based on my understanding here of what lamentation is. Intentional and sustained expression of sadness and grief over real loss and tragedy that does not immediately or obviously prioritize looking up or moving on. A lament could be a personal statement of despair. Think of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Spoken by David, repeated by David's greater son on the cross. Or it could be something like this, chapter 19, a a funeral dirge following the death of an important person. (laughs) An example would be David's lament for Saul at the start of 2 Samuel. Man, can you think of somebody who could have foregone lamenting? Saul wanted to kill him. And here's David weeping for Saul at the start of 2 Samuel. There's also communal lamentation, expressions of communal grief in times of crisis. Uh, An example might be Psalm 137. How shall we then sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So lamentation has a place in Scripture. It should have a place in our songs, 
but it generally doesn't. There are no lamentations on Caleb, okay? And since most of evangelicalism doesn't sing psalms anymore, we have de facto removed lamentation out of our singing. Now, just to be clear, <clears throat> it does seem that biblical lamentation uh, had, a, had a purpose and it, it was specifically occasioned. So what I'm not saying is, okay, okay, Christians, uh, you know, it's just been a little while since we did the lamenting thing, so, so let's do some lamenting so we can check our lamenting box. No, no, it, it does seem that it's brought about by specific occasions. Lamentation in the ancient world was a way of responding to specific tragedies and expressing grief because something in the present moment really was worth grieving over. And I think it's hard sometimes for us to grasp because at least in American evangelicalism, sometimes, as the stereotype goes, Christian joy means just being impervious to grief or sadness. The grief, you know, the, the, the tragedy comes, the sorrow comes, the heartache comes, the affliction comes, and you just, you just remain unmoved. Just cold statue, or maybe even worse, is fake smile, right? Through it all. Now, there is a time for a certain kind of sturdiness when people are grieving around you and, and they need some help to be held up. There's a time for that. Especially in leadership, and I would say especially in fatherhood as well. But Christianity does not teach a permanent emotional immovability. A kind of cold stoicism that is not Christian. Now I have observed that in many Christian circles, sometimes we swing the other direction. Uh, that we've, we've seen the cold stoicism. We know that's not Christian. We know that's not biblical. So we swing in the other direction by just emoting in every direction with no discernment, no maturity, no self-control. We just kind of emotionally vomit and overshare all the time. And so that's, you should also guard against that. But emotional maturity is, um, just as it's not constant, unguarded, thoughtless kind of word vomit, it is also not cold, immovable, stoic detachment. So our subject is lamentation. We should know how to lament. Because when tragedy hits you, real tragedy all shot through with its horror and loss, despair hits you like an avalanche coming down a mountain. In that moment, if you proceed to act like a few gentle snowflakes have fallen, there is just something fundamentally dishonest about that, is there not? And God is not fundamentally dishonest, the good news I give to you. He announces judgment is coming on His people, on His Davidic kings, and He laments. This is why at this church and at many other churches, we conduct funerals. And I will gently, we'll say that, I will gently press all of you when time comes to let me conduct funerals. Not celebrations of life. I understand the impulse there. The idea of ordering our remembrance around the resurrection. And there's something really, really good about that impulse. But I, I would also add, people need to grieve when these things happen. And a funeral gives them very upfront space to do so. You know, in Genesis 50, when, when Jacob slash Israel died, we read that the Egyptians of all people mourned for him for 70 days. 70 days. Surely we can spare one before we call on people to 
dry up and celebrate, which and maybe that's not a, I mean, it's an unfair way to view the celebration of life. I, I apologize if it's, if it's coming like that. I'm just saying I, I do use the language of a funeral because it is, I am intentionally saying we, we, are, we are grieving a real loss. We hate death. Right? We despise it. Lamentation, though, is, is kind of hard for us sometimes, I think, also because of, a, because of what I'll call American optimism. That is, our stories always have very happy endings. This one in Ezekiel doesn't, at least not yet. Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid observes something that I have found very helpful. He says, We should indeed believe that with God all things are possible. But, to be true to God's word, optimism must always be optimism in God's power combined with a healthy pessimism in our own abilities. God can do all things with or without us. Without Him, we can do nothing. Part of the trouble here in Ezekiel 19, in preaching it, I mean, is that it's one chapter in the midst of many. In a Bible, full of chapters, right? And so there's this temptation to take a text like this and kind of totalize it, right? There's a reason I did not name this sermon the Ezekiel 19 way of life, right? Just taking one bit of Scripture and just totalizing it for all of life at all times. This chapter is part of a larger whole, which is why, I mean, it's the reason we do expository preaching, the verse-by-verse stuff. God has a lot to say, and we don't want to leave parts out. We want to head toward the text, even the ones that are kind of hard to preach. But, But the hard part sometimes... Ezekiel 19 doesn't exist by itself. It's part of this larger whole. So I'm trying to bring your attention there as well. And there's a temptation to really oversimplify. Because oversimplify a text like this. Because I I said it earlier. God stops for a moment to lament, to express lamentation over the very judgment He Himself is bringing. Now that's weird. There is this that's where the temptation to oversimplify is. Like an older brother who overpowers his younger brother and then takes his arm and says, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. Right? We've all seen that. Hopefully you haven't experienced it. We read something like this. God laments over the judgment He's about to bring. And we almost want to say, Lord, <laughs> stop grieving yourself. Like, if you are so grieved, why the judgment? Stop grieving yourself. We go there because... Oh, I think in part what this reveals is pretty hard to bear. What, what we are seeing is that God is far more committed to His plan and purposes and to the destruction of evil than we ever are. We want our evil, our, my evil, right? My sins to, to be the, the floor, the ground floor of God's judgment. We want somebody else's sins to be the ceiling, Right? We want other men to be the ceiling. We want God to judge all evil men. We want evildoers to pay, except for when the sins are ours. But God is so resolutely committed to the perfection of His justice that He promises that all evil will be dealt with, even as He Himself takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is how committed He is to justice. And He calls His people, then and now, to repent. So is there any hope here? Well, if the book of Ezekiel were simply Ezekiel 19, then no. But the book of Ezekiel is 48 chapters. And like a symphony, it moves to high points and low points, between lament and hope, between wrath and mercy, between law 
and gospel. It is worth considering that the vineyard language of chapter 19 is probably meant to evoke echoes of the vineyard language in chapter 17, where, as I showed you earlier, there most certainly is hope. And God is saying, right now, in chapter 19, people of Israel, this is a time of lamentation. This is a time of judgment. Judgment will not have the last word. It never does in the stories that God writes. But it does have a word, and we must hear it appropriately. If there was ever a time to lament in all of the Bible, well, it would probably be Good Friday, right? But the, the mo- uh, best time to lament in the entire Bible. And second place would probably go to these moments in the history of Israel. Because the house of David is as good as dead. This is the theme of this lamentation, this song. The house of David is as good as dead. Israel is as good as dead. Later on, Israel gets compared in Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones. That's how dead they are. Oh, but wait, you know, I think you know that's not the last word of the story. What does God do with dry bones, dear saints? What does God do with dry bones? That's not rhetorical. What does God do with dry bones? He makes them live again. Yeah. Because God's promises cannot ultimately be destroyed by human weakness and failure. Even by a really, really, really long history of weakness and failure. Ezekiel and the other, Ezekiel and the other prophets, when they cried their tears of lament, and when the last notes of this funeral song are sounded, did find their day to look up. Isaiah prophesied that a shoot would spring up from the stump of Jesse. Why is it a stump? You ever thought about that? Why a stump? Because the idolatry of the kings and her people foolishly and selfishly provoked God Almighty to bring the chainsaw of judgment to them. Until God made sure that they knew and all the world knew that the God of Israel will not be mocked. And we behold in Israel and her kings failure after failure after failure until the prophets come, Ezekiel and others, and with large, dark lines blot out any possibility of seeing any of these clowns as a source of hope. And all that's left is a lamentation. And what we have to face today is that the same verdict that was delivered against the house of David is delivered against you and me and our best efforts and all our attempts to define ourselves, to define yourself apart from what God has said, to excuse yourself from what God has said, and to build a life on the foundation of ignoring what God has said. And God is merciful to you and me to give us a history of train wrecks Because He comes to save train wrecks. For after all these failure kings, another lion came. The lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the true vine and root of David. And in spite of all the failures of the sons of Adam, the second Adam, Christ, comes to win decisively the salvation and forgiveness of His people. This lion does not come to devour his prey. He comes looking like a lamb slain for his people. And even if we are presently in a dry and thirsty land, this does not devastate us because though the lament of Good Friday is real and visceral and miserable, it is no match for the coming glory 
of resurrection dawn. When trial and tragedy comes, we fear neither lament nor, by the way, hopeful joy because we are on our way to a day when the dead will be unburied and the only thing dying and filling coffins will be the memories of sorrows and lamentations. And so we lament. And when the time comes, we laugh. We weep, and when the time comes, we rejoice. We fight, and we feast. We know that the ruler's scepter has been given into the hand of our Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of the nations. He promises that our failures do not have the last word, and that our songs of lament will not hold the last note. Lift up your heads, Israel. Your Redeemer is here. In the name of Jesus, amen. So our Father, when we are in times of lament, why, Lord, has this happened? Why did you take my best friend at the worst time? When we are lost and don't understand and confused, be near to us, our Father, as the one who gives us time for this kind of talk, time for this kind of grief, and who does in due course promise to lift up our heads. Give us faith to believe in the God of Israel. Give us faith in Jesus our Savior who weeps by the tomb even as every part of him means to conquer the death that has so troubled and angered him. And so as we wait for that day, give us patience and hope. Feed us right now at your table so that we might endure with that hope until the very last day. In Jesus' name, amen.